Welcome to the first edition of News of the Church. Now, some time ago, I saw a movie called News of the World based on a novel of the same name. The movie stars Tom Hanks, who is an aging Confederate officer from Texas in 1870, who scratches out a meager living after the war by going from town to town and reading newspaper stories to the locals for an admission of ten cents a head. People in those days, of course, were news and novelty starved and often illiterate, so there was great interest in what he read. Now today, people are news and novelty drunk, and the sin of curiositas is rampant, and getting away from the news is probably a good idea for a lot of people. But the notion of a guy just sitting and reading seemingly random but interesting news items is catchy. One of my favorite characters from the stage, Cyrano de Bergerac, concludes, uh, many years after the main action, uh, by going to visit the convent to deliver his weekly gazette to Roxanne. Now, the word gazette is a common word in the title of newspapers. Uh, it's a journal, or a kind of a newspaper of record. Now, there's a verb in English, to gazette which is to announce or publish in a gazette. And gazetting came to be used for the announcing of military promotions and decorations. Uh, there is also a noun in English, gazettal, the act of gazetting, as in, for example, the gazettal of Father John Zolsdorf as a Monsignor was gazetted in the Black Duck Gazette. And a person who gazettes is, yes, a gazetteer. In any event, gazette came into English through French, but its origin is really Italian, gazetta, which is the name of a Venetian coin. And it happens that the first Venetian newspapers in the 16th century cost one gazetta, which was worth two soldi. A soldi is still the Italian word for money. And uh, we have come really full circle then, back to our roaming Texan, haven't we? The former Confederate officer, uh, I almost said diocesan bishop, who is a human gazette, uh, gazetting newspaper stories for a dime. The word dime, of course, we use for the ten-cent coin, and the word itself uh, it comes from Latin, decima, as in decima pars, the tenth part, from decem, ten. And it came into English through um, old French, uh, dizme. Uh, modern French is dime, you know, with that little uh, circumflex over the I, which represents a missing S. Uh, so anyway, we have all sorts of different phrases having to do with a dime, like stopping on a dime, or, you know, turning on a dime, or... Uh, uh, what do you say, a dime store, right? And uh, there's a dime novel because it was cheap. And uh, a dime a dozen is also for something that's cheap. So um, there are many different things about dimes. We used to use dimes all the time because that's what a telephone call used to cost in a telephone booth, which we never see anymore. I wonder at what point these phrases will just simply disappear almost completely and become so archaic that nobody knows them anymore. Now, before getting into business, uh, let's have one last digression about uh, money. 
the word money itself is from the title of a Roman goddess, Juno Moneta. And Juno Moneta's temple is where the mint was, where Rome minted its coins. And she was called Moneta, which is from the Latin verb to warn, because during the invasion of the Gauls in 390 BC, when the population took refuge on the peaks of the Capitoline Hill, some Gauls tried at night a sneak attack by scaling up the side of the hill. However, they were unfortunate in their choice because they ran into the pen of Juno's sacred geese, which immediately made a racket and warned the people that they were being attacked, and thus the sacred geese of Juno saved Rome for future invasions and for visits by me. So Juno the Warner, Juno Moneta, stuck to the coins minted at the temple, which is why we, why we call money, money. And in fact, in Italian today, a coin is una moneta. As a matter of fact, um, the episode I just talked about might be a good way to start this, uh, this gazette. Let's hear from Titus Livius, Livy, the ancient historian who died in 17 AD. This is from his great Ab Urbe Condita, from the founding of the city. It's from Book 5, Chapter 47, and it's about the, uh, the Gauls trying to get at the Romans who were struggling just to survive on the top of the Capitoline Hill. Dum hec veis agebantur, interim arx Romae capitoliumque in ingenti pediculo fuit, namque Galli seu vestigio notato humano qua nuntius aveis pervenerat seu suo sponte animat verso ad canonis. While these proceedings were taking place at Veii, the citadel and capital of Rome were in imminent danger. The Gauls had either noticed the footprints left by the messenger from the Veii, or had themselves discovered a comparatively easy ascent up the cliff to the temple of Carmentis. Choosing a night when there was a faint glimmer of light, they sent an unarmed man in advance to try the road. Then, handing one another their arms where the path was difficult, and supporting each other or dragging each other up the ground as required, they finally reached the summit. So silent had their movements been, that not only were they unnoticed by the sentinels, but they did not even wake the dogs, an animal peculiarly sensitive to nocturnal sounds. But they did not escape the notice of the geese, which were sacred to Juno and had been left untouched in spite of the extremely scanty supply of food. This proved the safety of the garrison, for their clamor and the noise of their wings aroused Marcus Manlius, the distinguished soldier, who had been consul three years before. He snatched up his weapons and ran to call the rest to arms, and while the rest hung back, he struck with the boss of his shield a Gaul who had got a foothold on the summit and knocked him down. He fell on those behind him and upset them, and Manlius slew others who had laid aside their weapons and were clinging to rocks with their hands. By this time others had joined him, and they began to dislodge the enemy with volleys of stones and javelins, till the whole body fell helplessly down to the bottom. When the uproar had died away, the remainder of the night was given to sleep, as far as was possible under such disturbing circumstances, whilst their peril, though past, still made them anxious. 
At daybreak, the soldiers were summoned by sound of trumpet to a council in the presence of the tribunes, when the due rewards for good conduct and bad would be awarded. First, Manlius was commended for his bravery, and rewarded not by the tribunes alone, but by the soldiers as a body, for every man brought to him at his quarters, which were in the citadel, half a pound of meal and a quarter pint of wine. This does not sound much, but the scarcity made it an overwhelming proof of the affection felt for him, since each stinted himself of food and contributed in honor of that one man what had to be taken from his necessaries of life. Next, the sentinels, who had been on duty at the spot where the enemy had climbed up without their noticing it, were called forward. Quintus Sulpicius, the consular tribune, declared that he should punish them all by martial law. He was, however, deterred from this course by the shouts of the soldiers, who all agreed in throwing the blame on one man. As there was no doubt of his guilt, he was amidst general approval flung from the top of the cliff. A stricter watch was now kept on both sides, by the Gauls, because it had become known that messengers were passing between Rome and the Veii, by the Romans, who had not forgotten the danger they were in that night. There's a venerable Catholic English-language newspaper, uh, which has been in print since 1867 out of St. Paul, Minnesota, called The Wanderer. Originally, I think it was in German, and I don't remember the year it changed to English, but it's been around for a long time, and I wrote for it for many years. And I receive the, the paper edition uh, every week. They faithfully send it to me, and I faithfully read it. Well, in the 9 November number of The Wanderer, there are a couple of items which you may be interested in hearing. First of all, on page uh, 7a, I read a piece by John Newton that I think came from the Catholic News Agency originally. The title is Church in India Rejoices That Their Martyrs Are Now on the Road to Sainthood. London. An Indian archbishop has expressed delight that the Vatican has opened the cause of canonization of martyrs killed during one of the most violent outbreaks of Christian persecution this century. The cause has been opened of Catholic catechist Cantiswar Digal and 34 others who died when Hindutva extremists attacked Christians in Kantamal Odisha, formerly Orissa state, in 2008, setting ablaze churches, convents, and Christian homes, forcing thousands to seek sanctuary in the forests. Archbishop John Barwa of Kuttak Bhubaneswar told aid to the church in need, the servants of God, Kantiswar Digal, and companions' life and sacrifice represent a powerful testament to the enduring faith and resilience of our community in the face of adversity. Their unwavering dedication to spreading the teachings of Christ, even in the most challenging circumstances, is an inspiration to us all. Archbishop Barwa added, In their memory, we find a symbol of hope, a reminder of the strength that faith can bestow upon us, and a beacon of light in times of darkness. 
the process of beatification not only acknowledges their remarkable life and service, but also offers a profound source of spiritual nourishment for Christians in Kutak, Banisvar, and elsewhere. The Vatican's dicastery for causes of saints has granted the Nihil Obstat, a formal declaration stating that there is no objection to opening the cause for the canonization of Kantiswar Deagle and Companions. On October 18, 2023, they were declared to be servants of God, which is the first step toward formal sainthood. They were killed during anti-Christian riots that started in August 2008, when members of the community were attacked on the pretext that a Christian killed Hindu monk and extremist leader Laksamananda Saraswati, despite Maoists claiming responsibility for his assassination. These followed December 2007 persecutions, triggered by Christians refusing to cancel Christmas celebrations. And that's the end of the story there on page 7a of The Wanderer. That's interesting about canceling celebrations, isn't it? I mean, don't we see this in communities where people fight putting up Christmas decorations and, you know, well... That's how things roll. An online news and commentary site, Crooks, subtitled Taking the Catholic Pulse, has been around for a while. It originally started with the Boston Globe. And now if you take a look at their About page, they seem to be linked in with um, some entities in the Diocese of Brooklyn. Not sure how that works. Anyway, John Allen is the, the editor. You might remember that John Allen wrote for many years for the, uh, the fish wrap. And, uh, but he's been with uh, Crooks for quite a while. He has an interesting story here entitled, Yet Another Mystery Emerges About What the Pope Actually Said. And uh, this is under date of 19 November uh, 2023. Uh, the title caught my my attention because my blog used to be called What Does the Prayer Really Say? So what did the Pope actually say? It's very similar. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear this story. Rome. By any measure one chooses to employ, the papacy is among the most visible offices on the face of the planet. On the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, for instance, Pope Francis' combined following of 53 million spread over his nine different language accounts currently puts him in third place among current world leaders, behind only Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and President Joe Biden of the United States. Given the spotlight perennially trained on a pope, you might think that there would never be any doubt as to whether he actually said something, since someone is always listening. And anyway, if a line is erroneously attributed to a pope, the Vatican has more communications channels than you can shake a stick at to set the record straight. Yet despite all that, one recurrent feature of the Francis papacy has been the occasional mystery, what the Italians would call a giallo, meaning yellow, after the color of paper on which detective stories here used to be printed, about what the pope actually said. Just moments after his election, in March 2013, for instance, a rumor began to make the rounds 
that when he was approached by the Vatican's master of ceremonies to put on the mozzetta, a red velvet vestment edged with ermine often warmed by past popes, he testily refused, snapping, The carnival is finished. <coughs> Just uh, stepping out of the story for a second. Il carniv carnivale finita. Carnivale is the time when people would dress up uh, before Lent, you know, like leading up to Mardi Gras and and all of that. So let's go back to our story. That was taken as a deliberate slap at the liturgical fashion under his predecessor, Benedict Sixteenth, and although sources close to the new pontiff swiftly insisted that he never said any such thing, one can still find internet references to the alleged line today. To take another example, there's the infamous series of interviews Francis gave to the legendary Italian journalist Eugenio Scalferi, who died in July 2022 at the venerable age of 98. I'll step out of the story here for just a second again. His name is Scalferi, not Scalfari. Okay, Eugenio Scalferi. Okay, going back to John Allen now. Between 2013 and 2018, Scalfetti, a self-professed atheist, had at least four substantial conversations with Francis. Every time, he would later publish an essay quoting the Pope as having said all manner of things, ranging from the idea that truth isn't absolute to the startling claim that hell doesn't exist. In each instance, a Vatican spokesperson would say that these were Scalfari's reconstructions, not necessarily direct quotes, but no one ever disowned the alleged citations either, leaving the impression that Francis indeed may have said something along those lines, even if it was hard to know where the Pope's thinking ended and Scalfari's began. All this comes to mind in light of a new such mini-giallo that's emerged this week regarding the content of a recent meeting between Pope Francis and roughly 40 priests of the Diocese of Rome, which took place at a parish in the Villa Verde neighborhood on the city's eastern outskirts. In theory, this was a private meeting with no official recording or transcript. But the next day, an influential Italian blog called Sillere Non Possum, I cannot be silent, carried a lengthy account of the session complete with lengthy, allegedly direct quotes. Three lines in particular stand out in terms of news interest. Quote, You'll say the Pope is a Lutheran. Unquote. Francis supposedly said this in the context of discussing his pastoral approach to communion for divorced and civilly remarried Catholics, telling a story about a 60-year-old Italian woman who'd written him a letter explaining that she was in a second marriage and had children with her husband, but couldn't take communion. According to the blog, Francis said he advised the woman to make a confession and then quietly go to another parish and take communion. Quote, Some may say that the Pope is a relativist. Let it be a fruitful relativism. Closed quote. This line was allegedly delivered in the same context regarding the divorced and civilly remarried. Quote, Anglo-Saxon culture. Those of us who are Latins, we have closeness to the people. Clericalism is an attitude that's distant from the people. Closed quote. 
this line which allegedly came up in the context of discussing the various demands priests often face from their congregations would appear to suggest that the pope sees clericalism as a particular temptation of anglo-saxon clergy if the pope indeed said these things it would shed interesting light on several aspects of his papacy whether he actually did so however is the sixty four thousand dollar question for the record Silere non possum identifies itself as a blog founded by a lay italian canon lawyer and expert on the vatican penal system named marco felipe perfetti it clearly has good sources major news outlets such as the associated press for example have quoted its reports on the abuse scandals surrounding ex-jesuit father marco rupnik on the other hand even a casual reading of the site reveals a fairly strong anti-francis editorial line moreover because silere non possum is a blog rather than a news agency it often doesn't quote sources by name or provide a clear sense of where its information comes from okay you will recognize that as being an incoming call uh, let's continue where we left off, shall we? Because Silere Non Possum is a blog rather than a news agency, it often doesn't quote sources by name or provide a clear sense of where its information comes from, making it problematic to assess its credibility. In presenting its new report, Silere Non Possum interspersed the supposed quotations from the Pope with its own derisive commentary helpfully presented in each case in bold face type so readers couldn't possibly miss the editorial obiter dicta for instance with regard to the pope's anecdote about calling the divorced and remarried woman the blog added quote, a tip for pastors from here on out take francis cell phone number and post it on the bulletin board and he'll solve all the problems close quote one struggles to escape the impression that the blog's goal was to provide fresh reasons for its readers to get upset with Francis, without necessarily being overly scrupulous about verbatim accuracy. On the other hand, if the Pope never said anything even remotely like what the blog quotes, it's hard to know why the Vatican wouldn't say so out loud. A spokesman could simply state, Quote, while the contents of the session were private, I can confirm that the comments attributed to the Holy Father are false. Close quote. Instead, all we're getting at the moment is a version of the standard no comment, leaving it unclear what exactly transpired. A cynic actually might be inclined to conclude that Francis or his advisers are happy enough to have those lines floating around, framing public impressions of what the Pope really thinks, without having to take direct ownership of them. In any event, and until we get either official confirmation or denial, quote, the Pope is a Lutheran, and, quote, Anglo-Saxon culture vis-a-vis -vis clericalism, now take their place alongside, quote, the carnival is finished, and, quote, hell doesn't exist, as celebrated non-quotation quotations from one of the most epigrammatic popes of all time, so much so, in fact, that even stuff he may never have said is well on its way to immortality. Thus, John Allen of Crux, uh, Crux, 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 
formerly of the fish wrap. I turn to another piece from the internet, and uh, this is from Catholic News Agency. It's about a meeting that Francis had with the National Association of Hispanic Priests. It's an American, a group of Americans. Uh, the meeting took place in the Apostolic Palace on the 16th of November of 2023. The story in itself, you know, the fact that he met with a bunch of American priests is interesting because he doesn't really seem to like Americans and priests. But anyway, uh, I digress. There is a, um, a bit in this story which is really quite interesting. I won't read the whole thing to you, but I'll get, I'll read at least through the a part that is, I found very, very interesting. So the title of the story is, Pope Francis tells American priests, do not leave the Lord of the Tabernacle alone. The story is by Courtney Mars, or Mares. She's the Rome correspondent for the Catholic News Agency. So, Rome, Newsroom, November 17th, 2023. The presence of Jesus in every tabernacle points us to how we can serve our suffering brothers and sisters who share in Christ's passion today, Pope Francis told American priests this week. In an audience with the National Association of Hispanic Priests on November 16th, Pope Francis shared his advice for living a Eucharistic prayer life ahead of the upcoming National Eucharistic Congress to be held in Indianapolis in July 2024. Quote, Do not leave those who suffer alone. Do not leave the Lord of the Tabernacle alone. Convince yourselves that you cannot do anything with your hands if you do not do it with your knees, close quote, Pope Francis told the priests. Drawing from the life and testimony of both St. Manuel Gonzalez and blessed Carlo Acutis, two patrons of the National Eucharistic Revival in the United States, Pope Francis underlined the importance of prayer in Eucharistic adoration. Quoting Gonzalez, the Pope said, In every tabernacle, in every consecrated chalice, we see the cross being raised, and he asks us, Can we do something to relieve the suffering of Christ today? Do it, do it as soon as possible. But do it knowing that the Passion will be the companion of Jesus of your tabernacles in every suffering brother and sister, and what God asks of you is not to leave them alone. Close quote. Pope Francis compared the back and forth between Eucharistic prayer and service to others in the life of a priest to a game of ping pong. Quote, Adoration, Eucharistic silence, and intercession before the tabernacle, and then, yes, service. But it is like ping-pong, one thing leads to another, one thing leads to another. St. Manuel tells us that Jesus does not demand of us that we prevent the passion, but that we give him glory in the midst of it. St. Manuel Gonzalez Garcia, 1877-1940, was a bishop amidst the Spanish Civil War, who was known for his strong devotion to the Eucharist. After his Episcopal ordination in Seville, he said, 
Quote, I desire that in my life as a bishop, as before in my life as a priest, my soul should not grieve except for one sorrow, which is the greatest of all, the abandonment of the tabernacle, and that it should rejoice for one joy, the tabernacle, which does not lack company. Close quote. On his tomb in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel in Palencia Cathedral, it is written, quote, I ask to be buried next to a tabernacle, so that my bones after my death, like my tongue and my pen in life, may always be repeating to those who pass by, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, do not leave him abandoned. Close quote. Pope Francis said that Gonzalez is a model for how to read the living book of Christ, seeking him in scripture in silent adoration. That's the first part of this piece by Courtney Mars in the CNA piece about this meeting with American priests, the National Association of Hispanic Priests. There are a few little holes in the story in here, and... Um, Francis's own account of the dynamic of adoration and then service could have been spun out a little bit more. Frankly, I don't know if he said any more than that. But one thing that it did remind me of, it reminds me of the dynamic that results from full conscious and active participation in liturgical, sacred liturgical worship, especially um, at Mass. Of course, the true aspect or true meaning of active participation is not like carrying stuff around. It's being actively receptive to what God wants to give us during the Mass, during the empty spaces between words and gestures, but also in the words and gestures themselves. And then eventually himself in the most perfect example of active participation, which is the reception of communion in the state of grace because there is an interior thing goes on which then gives rise to outward expression. You know, the responses to Dominus Vobiscum, the singing of the creed and, and so forth when those things are done uh, as a congregation. The inward participation and receptivity then breaks out in outward active participation, but in its proper moment in its proper way and so forth so this uh, story um, underscored uh, that point about sacred worship but it also talked about adoration and um, this is something that we need to bring back as part of a an overall picture of eucharistic revival along with uh, putting communion rails back in and getting rid of communion in the hand and all sorts of things that you know i'm all about so uh, in any event, I found those words of St. Manuel González García, who I didn't know anything about uh, before, and uh, have uh, since looked up. Those words on his tomb to be really quite moving. One of the things that I get in the mail is a newsletter from the Benedictine monks of Silverstream Priory in Ireland. It's a little newsletter called In Chinaculo. And in this edition, there is 
uh, just a little bit of news from their own chronicle, the, that the, a little something that they gazetted, and here it is. As our last chronicle began with the end of the academic year and a trip to monastic ruins, our chronicle this time around begins with a trip to more monastic ruins and the beginning of the academic year. Perhaps some of our more seasoned readers will remember a journey that we made in 2019 to Four Abbey in Westmeath to celebrate the feast of St. Oliver Plunkett in the ancient monastic ruins. The brothers certainly remember it, not only on account of the great blessing it was to celebrate Mass in an ancient monastic church, but also because it was a particularly sunny day, and all of the brothers had just had their hair trimmed, and we had a marked deficiency of sun hats. Let's, let's just say that the vestments were not the only things that were bright red that day. Moving on, however, after four years away, we decided we were overdue for a return. So, on the 22nd of August, the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, we made our way to Four Abbey. We departed the monastery around 10.30 a.m. and arrived at the abbey around an hour later to begin the day by singing Mass in the ruins of the main monastic church. Thanks be to God, the folks around Four also thought that we were overdue for a trip since we had a sizable crowd of townspeople show up for the Mass when we arrived. Father Pryor celebrated the Mass, and Father Subprior preached a homily about how Our Lady's Immaculate Heart is like a church in which we dwell. After Mass, the community prayed sext, and then went for some coffee, scones, and lunch at the nearby tea shop. After that, we went to the church of St. Fechin, just across the road from the main abbey site, and prayed known before walking around the abbey grounds and getting some exercise. Late in the afternoon we packed up our things and went to Castle Pollard to pay a quick visit to Father Patrick Moore and pray vespers in the parish church of St. Michael. We made it back to the monastery in good time for supper and a relaxing evening and then closed out the day with Compline in our courtyard before the statue of Our Lady Abbess. Well, that was from in Chinacolo, the autumn twenty. 23 edition from the Monks of Silverstream. The Latin Liturgy Association was founded in 1975 to promote the more frequent celebration of Mass in the Latin language. And uh, so, of course, they were very interested in Latin and the Novus Ordo at first. Uh, now that Latin uh, has been I don't know, it's pretty much sequestered in the older form. Maybe because of Traditionis Custodes, it's coming back a little bit in, in the Novus Ordo again. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, they put out a newsletter, the Latin Liturgy Association does, and I am holding right here one from uh, dated under September. It looks like it's their um, 143rd newsletter. And it is like a gazette. It's like what I'm doing right now. It gazettes all sorts of little bits and pieces of information and some uh, excerpts from longer essays. As a matter of fact, at the end of it, it has uh, the pastoral letter from Bishop Strickland dated the 23rd of August, 2023. And there's a piece in here by Peter Kwasniewski. And there's a piece in here 
by Father Thomas Wynandy, who's a theologian. Um, but what really caught my eye is someone whom I know well. It says, News from St. Augustine Academy Press. Lisa Bergman reports, quote, in June 2023, the French edition of our book, Treasure and Tradition, finally entered the world thanks to the assistance of Benoit Machiron and his publishing house, Via Romana. It is currently only available directly through their website, shipping from France, but we hope to add it to our lineup soon. At the end of July 2023, the Italian edition joined its French brother, thanks to Giovanni Zenone of Fede e Cultura in Verona, Italy. This book, Treasure in Tradition, The Ultimate Guide to the Latin Mass, is currently available in six languages. The seventh language, German, is currently underway. This summer, I also accepted an invitation to visit Poland, where I was blessed to meet and spend time with the team that brought the Polish edition of Treasure and Tradition to life. Jerzy Skalaszynski graciously invited us into his home and proudly showed us so many of the beauties of his homeland. He has been working hard on publishing several of our other books with his company in Poland, Key 4, including Our Stations of the Cross, as well as an adaptation of My Book of the Church's Year, which adds beloved Polish saints in place of the less well-known English ones. For more information, go to https colon slash slash www.stagustinacademypress.com That uh, stagustinacademypress.com is all one word run together. Now I can... Uh, vouch for this book. It's fascinating, Treasure and Tradition. It's beautifully published. It's a, a, a hardcover, although it did, interestingly enough, it had a, a soft cover uh, life and a very interesting uh, point in history, but it has uh, beautifully covered, uh, colored pages and uh, uh, lovely illustrations and descriptions of the mass and so forth. It's It's Frankly, it's splendid. It's lovely. It would be a lo wonderful gift, even to people who are very familiar with Holy Mass in the uh, traditional form. Uh, one thing that really impressed me is that uh, when uh, Lisa and others got it translated into Spanish and Italian, they went to Rome at the time of the first synod on the family, I think it was, and they had thousands of copies of it published in a kind of a simpler format, not like a hardback, but um, in, you know, paper. And then near the Synod Hall, they distributed it uh, for free to people going into the Synod and, and other people passing by too. And they got sort of ejected by the police telling them that they saying that they had to have a permit and so forth is really quite a dramatic thing i remember writing about it on the blog might be something uh, interesting to look up but uh, the saint augustine academy press um, is dedicated to uh, republishing um, older lovely older books that have gone out of print 
as a matter of fact, at my urging, uh, they redid a beautiful little book um, called Little St. Placid, and um, uh, a magnificent thing, which I can, we can talk about in another format. But uh, this is a very worthwhile thing, and I thought you'd like to hear that news. So many things to share in so little time. Well, I won't take up any more of your valuable time. Until next time, if there is one, uh, both the Tom Hanks character in the movie and Cyrano de Bergerac delivered their gazettes with a measure of panache. And I hope that I, your humble gazetteer, can do the same. So let's conclude with the memorare in Latin. Memorare o piissima Virgo Maria, non esse auditum a seculo, quem quam ad tua curentem presidia, tua implorantem auxilia, tua petentem suffragia, esse de redictum. Ego, tali animatus confidentia, ad te Virgo Virginum, Mater, curro, ad te venio, coram te gemens peccator assisto. Noli, mater verbi, verba mea despicere, sed audi propitia et exaudi. Amen. This has been your Gazetteer of the News of the Church, Father John Zulsdorf. Please pray for me as I will for you.